0: Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the Farm Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Mr. Aaron Friedman, and we'll be discussing a uh, relatively new Sefer, that was that uh, he published, or helped to publish, uh, titled Sefer Pne Avram, which is Chidushim Ubuyurim Upupulim. As I'm reading for the Sha'ar, daf, al, daf al, masekhto, psochem, giden, so, three of Avli Selim, friend, who was the Avbezin in Kasha uh, in Hungary, or Slovakia in the nineteenth uh, century, I believe. So, uh, thank you, Mr. Friedman, for joining me.
1: Thank you very much for having me and including me in text for all the things that you do to spread Torah.
0: Okay, so let's sort of want to tell, tell sort of tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Yes, well, I uh, I was uh, I was born and raised in Forest Hills, Queens, in New York City. Uh, I'm the child of Holocaust survivors, which is going to come up obviously here uh, and a key element of the story. I went to um, modern Orthodox elementary school, where I learned Hebrew very well, and then to Chavetz Chaim High School for four years. Then I spent two years learning full-time in Yeshivat Haritz Yon, in Gush, in Israel, followed by three years at YU. And uh, I guess at the age of 22, my formal Jewish education ended, but then I followed with uh, three years at NYU Law School. I'm a real estate lawyer uh, by profession. But I kept up my learning or at least tried to keep up my learning since the age of 22.
0: So as I mentioned, this is a, a Sefer, and we're going to get more into the Sefer and the Machaber, but how did you come to the Sefer? I, I don't think I mentioned it was published by Mechon Shlomo Elman, with the Shalavim, so the publishing house, they publish a lot of svarim, they used to publish Mechon Yisholai and now they publish themselves. How, what is your connection to this Sefer here?
1: Okay, that's a, a long story, and I hope you'll bear with me. Um, so as I said, my father was a Holocaust survivor. He grew up in the town of Kasho in Slovakia, but I think it's correct to call it Hungary too, because culturally it was part of Hungary. It's part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire until World War I. Um, so in a short uh, in a short version of the story, uh, which uh, I'll come to later, my, my father discovered, uh, came upon the Ksav Yad, 448 pages, two-sided, long, legal-sized pages with very narrowly written Saviad of Chidushim. He came on it when he returned to his family's apartment after the Holocaust, after he had been in concentration camps and he was liberated at the very end of the war, made his way back to Kasho, and in about July of 1945, he ended up being, unfortunately, the only person from his immediate family to survive. He went back to his... uh, family's home, and then he found the Ksav Yad there. It's a riddle to us why the Ksav Yad was there. Um, the, the Mechaber had no connection to us. Actually, I found a very tenuous connection to our family, but um, an interesting one, if you will, if we, if we have time later, later on. So it has a little bit of Rechilus um, or Lashon Har in it, but uh, the um, there's, there's almost no connection to the Mechaber. We don't know, uh, except for the fact that he was a and Kasho and my father grew up in Kasha, as I said, um, and as far as Machon Shlomo Aum, and as I mentioned, I studied in Yeshivat HaRatzion, the years that I was there, um, Rabbi Yoel Katan, who runs the Machon Shlomo Aum, and was also studying there, we became friendly, uh, I love Svarim, he certainly loves Svarim, I loved just speaking to him, and we became close friends uh, back in the day, I visited his family's home in Yerushalayim, he actually was in America and stayed with us for Shabbos, so he actually got to meet my father. Uh, in the like around 1980. Um so uh, when I was looking around once I had um, I actually um was playing around with this kxabya my father had brought it I'll, we'll talk about it in a minute when I when I had the Xavya to publish I was figuring out where to publish it and another friend of mine who had been with me at Haretzon, Shimon Shlomo Goldschmidt, told me, Oh, why don't you take it to the Mahon? And I said, Well the Machon does Very high level, we've shown him, they're doing the smog now, they're separating out the rabbinic parrots from the smog, and they're doing the smog, and this is a 19th century, obscure Hungarian rav, would they be interested in it? And he said they would, and it was great. So uh, they took it over, and um, they did a great job with it, of course. So that's how I got to Machon Shlomo Alman, and the the Savya, that we can get into a little later, about how it got to my father.
0: Yeah, that's what I want to pick up. We we'll can talk about the Xavyat, we'll talk about the community of Kasha a little bit. But before that, but your father, I mean, how old was your father when he found this? Uh, you, I think you mentioned he was he was so he was deported kind of camp and came back. What's the exact story? What's your father's story in this? Because he's a in, plays an integral role in this Xavyata. And I, I should mention this safer is published, is 966 pages. I mean, again, that's remote seconds, it's massive safer. So the yeah. fact that this safer sees a lot of days. Your, you know, your father's hus that this really is being published, your, yours and your father's. So if you could talk a little bit about your father's story and and what happened here.
1: Absolutely. And then I'll mention just the night you should know that the 900 pages, unlike a lot of sperm, I'd say 95% of the sefer is the Mechaber's words. There's very little in the way of footnotes. Um, and, and that's because the Mechaber is easy to understand. We'll come to that, too. So my father, as I said, he grew up in Kasho. He actually um, was born in uh, November of 1930. So, if you think about it, he's probably one of the youngest people to have been deported to Auschwitz and survived. Um, so, in 19, um, a little bit about the history of uh, Slovakia, I think, is necessary. Um, Czechoslovakia was a country that includes what's today the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and even a part of Ukraine, Western Ukraine, which the Soviets took for themselves and for Ukraine after World War II. So for instance Munkács Svalyva uh, these towns were actually are today in Ukraine but they were in Czechoslovakia before World War II and as I said culturally it was a Hungarian speaking place before World War I it was all part of Hungary. So my father grew up in uh, in Kaso. he was the middle child of a three uh, of three children. Uh, he had a brother who was about 5 years older than him and a, a sister who was about 5 years younger than him. Um his father that's my father's father was um, the ninth child of a Rav, who had been a Rav in France, so- which is a town between Kasho and Munkach. Uh, My grandfather, my, fa- my great grandfather, who my father was named after, was named Anasha Simcha Friedman. He also uh, published, uh, there was a Sefer published of his uh, Drashus on the Torah, but uh, he was a Rav in about 40 years in this town. He was a Talmud of the Yitavle, which is the Sahara Rebbe that we all know of as the Saint Rebbe's grandfather. That's you, you, the title bound. Um, we wrote and and Shuvah Ad Neitzedek. So my my great grandfather was the Talmud of the the of his grandfather. My great uncle, my father's father's brother, was a Talmud of the Satur of his father. My father's father was the youngest of nine, and unfortunately, I never really asked my father where his father learned, but I got the sense that his father was a Talmud Chacham and was very involved in in Kehilla stuff. Um, so uh, at, his older brother was a very serious learner. He was 19 when they got to Auschwitz. And my father always told the story. You can just get the sense of how learning was so important to, in his family, at least to his brother. The Nazis said, you can take two suitcases with you to the train station. So he took one suitcase with a few clothes and food for the trip. And the other suitcase was all his casey, which, of course, unfortunately got lost uh, when they got to Auschwitz. He was He did not survive either. So, um, that was the kind of family he came from on the other on the one hand, they were very serious, you know, very firm, but they were also modern. My father's father had gone to gymnasium, had a degree in accounting and worked as an accountant for the second for the biggest grain company in Czechoslovakia for their branch office in Kasho. So he wore a rymo, but only in the house in the street, he had a suit and he wore a clipped beard. He didn't wear uh, a bekisha. but they were kind of connected to. Sons. The sons, if you know the map, if you look at the map, Sons is at the very south of Poland, near the border of, uh, of Slovakia. And so the the, the Stiebel they went to was the Strupkova. He was the grandson of the Sons of Reb, the son of the Shinova. So uh, it was kind of a, a mix of uh, it, like he would call it a mono Hasidic family. I asked my father once, if your father would have survived, what where would he have davened? And he said to me, he probably would have been in the Aguda in Borough Park. That kind of guy. You know, all these guys were. You know, clean shaven and very learned, and learned in yeshivas before the war. That's probably where he would have ended up. <clears throat> Excuse me. So my father said. So my father told me this too. I mean, he he himself, like I said, his formal Jewish education stopped at thirteen. I was amazed. Um, so um, my father told me he was only 13 and a half when he he was taken away from his home and when his whole community was destroyed. So I was amazed growing up in Forest Hills at how much my father knew about Yiddishkeit, about about even, you know, how to run a Jewish home, about davening and things like that. This is an example. He only had one year that he was bar mitzvah uh, before he was taken away. And even though they were Hasidim, because they were this Hungarian part of of Europe, they were very strong about some chasam sofer minhagim. For instance, my father was always very mocked about wearing tefillin on Chol even and to say a bracha on them. And I remember that he told me that on the first day of Chol Pesach, be sure to keep your tefillin on until after the reading of the first uh, sefer Torah, because that's when you read Kadesh Leikovachor and Kivyacha, where the tefillin is mentioned. So it's the kind of thing that he only saw once, he only had one year of wearing tefillin before he was taken away. But he, he knew that he remembered all kinds of um, Hanhagas and and history of Kasho. So I really learned a lot from him. And he was the kind of survivor, there were two kinds, the ones who didn't talk at all, and the ones who talked a lot. And Baruch Hashem for us, he was somebody who really shared a lot of his experiences. And we were actually Zoka to go with him in 1998, my siblings and myself and my, my, and my parents, uh, to Kasho and to get a tour of the town with him. And all, in, the, in this case, most of the places that he'd grown up in saw so is the Stiebruch and the Schulz were all there, not in the same use anymore, by and large, but we could get really a feel for what his life was like. So he, um, you know, he did not learn, he didn't learn how to learn the way he could have. He told me that even though it's not just that he was 13 and a half years old. He said, by 1938, uh, and this is the history I didn't uh, tell you, but 19, it's important for the story. In 1938, the Germans broke up Czechoslovakia into constituent parts. And one part they took for themselves, the Sudetenland. Another part they start, they made this protector, of the and Moravia. Another part they made this country called Slovakia, which did not include Kasho. And a part and a lot of what had been Czechoslovakia, they gave to the Hungarians, who were their allies. So this is very important for the survival of Jews in Kasho. Because if you know the history, well, when the Germans invaded Poland in 1939, it started to be terrible for all the Jews in Poland. Hungarian Jews were not touched until 1944, because they were allies of the Germans, and they didn't. Uh, the Germans didn't want to arm wrestle with them about getting the Jews deported. So from 1938 until 1944, Kasha was part of Hungary, had been returned to Hungary, which meant that the Jews who were there were were immune from deportation, and a lot of Jews actually escaped from Poland to Kasho to get away from the hell that was in, going on in Poland. So my father got a more or less normal Jewish education from till 1944, till the Germans took over the Hungarian government in March of 1944. He had a regular bar mitzvah, he said this pshetel. he went to cheder. Uh, they, the, the way it was set up there, they went to cheder in the afternoon, they had public school in the morning, they went to cheder in the afternoon, but he, he learned something. But what he told me was that he wasn't the best masmid, and if he didn't want to go to cheder, he could easily tell his Rebbe that there were German soldiers in the street and I couldn't go out, or Hungarian soldiers. And it was a very good excuse. So he told me that he he, he kind of regrets that he didn't use the opportunity they did have. But even that, all he had was told 13 and a half. So even though he himself did not get the kind of Torah education that he could have got or, in retrospect, wanted to get, he was very, very, um, uh, you know, worked very hard for us, for his children, me and my siblings, to to go to yeshiva and to learn as much. And he always loved talking about Torah. And because, I said, even with the little bit that he did get, he knew a lot more I would dare to say, than a lot of our children, though, when they're 13 and a half. So he was able to lead a life that was kind of connected to Torah, but never to contribute at this level. But here we have this wonderful thing that he, and let me just uh, explain how this happened in a little more detail how this happened. So as I said, when the, the, the the family of five was deported from Kashro in the end of June in 1944, they knew that it was going to be terrible and they didn't know where they were going to be. But they made up, they said to each other, after the war, wherever we are, we all go back to Kasho and we'll see what we're going to do from there. So unfortunately, the day that he got there with his nine-year-old sister, he knew his sister was gone. He knew his mother wouldn't be separated from his sister. So at that point, he knew his mother and sister were gone. He was together with his brother and his father for a lot of the first few months, or a good chunk of the first six months or so that he was in a slave uh, labor camps. But at some point his father got separated from him and he was with his brother when Auschwitz was um, given up the the German when the Russians were coming closer the Germans made all the uh, Jews run hundreds of miles he ended up in a place called Ebensee in Austria with his brother his brother unfortunately died a few days after they got to Ebensee in February of 45 and then he was liberated in May he was got sick after the war and finally made his way back to Kasho in July He's 14 and a half years old. He doesn't know if his father's alive or not. He knows the rest of his family is gone. And he goes to his apartment, and it's a wreck because the non-Jews in the in the community had figured, oh, the Jews must have hidden valuables, and you know they pulled apart the whole apartment. It was a total wreck. There were no valuables. And he didn't really have much else to, that he could take there. The only things he found were this 48-page manuscript and one safer that his brother had given his father as a gift, which we still have, uh, uh, in our library now. So he took the safer with him. It was a very, very unsettled time, and he was a fourteen-year-old who had no, no pikuach. Nobody was was watching what he was doing. He was running around smuggling cigarettes from one zone to the other, living a very, very unhealthy lifestyle uh, for about six months. And the whole time, he was able to keep the safiyah and the safer wherever he kept it. Uh, eventually, he, he 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 got to Northern Ireland, where they were taking. The British army was taking refugees, and then from Northern Ireland, he went to London, where he lived for three years, learned how to cut diamonds, and, and ended up being in the jewelry business for his whole life. He came to the United States in 1949. So that's pretty much the um, the story of how my father came to the Xaviad, and he kept it with, with him. He never really had the time or the budget to do anything with it while he was alive, but there was something that was in our house when I was a child, and i, I take taken and i try to make heads and tails. I couldn't read one word of the xab because it was so hard to read the handwriting. I just knew that it was called Pneavram, and it was on Prima Sextus.
0: So, uh, first of all, earlier, when you were saying your great-grandfather was a Rav, the audio cut out for the, you your great-grandfather was Rav where?
1: In a town called Subrance, S-O-B-R-A-N-C-E, which, as I said, is about midway between Kasho and Munkach, or Kasho and Ungvar, which is like the first town over the... Uh, What's today? The check the Slovak, Ukrainian border.
0: So, did your father ever tell you? Did you ever ask him to, why did he decide to take the Ksavyad and just carry around with him all those months, all those years, and just, just carry and keep it with him his whole life? Did you ever get the reason out of him?
1: I I didn't get an answer to that specific question. I I, I think my father felt that there was some great value in it. That there's Torah here that has to be preserved. Um, he, he couldn't explain who it was. At the beginning, when I was a young child, my, my father's brother's name was Avram Yaku. And so first when I saw it, you know, as a, I don't know, 11-year-old, and I said, oh, maybe this was for my father's brother. Maybe he didn't take all his sovereign him to Auschwitz. Maybe we have something for that he himself. And then later on, when I showed it to, to people uh, who could read the Ksavya, they told me that just, this is just too advanced. Even for a, a Masmid who spent five, six years learning at, you know, to have written at the age of nineteen, so it was something that was Torah that he, even while my father wasn't necessarily involved in, it, he was not at all involved in publishing Torah svarim. He, he thought it would be a great uh, terrible thing to just leave it there. Um, I, honestly, in retrospect, uh, in 1998, when we did visit, um, we went to the the shul was still functioning. There's still a few hundred Jews living in Koshov today. Um then there was still a minion Friday night Shabbos, morning, Shabbos, afternoon. My father went went back the first time in ni- 1982 and there was a minion three times a day still. Um so there, what happened after the war was they brought all the uh, people brought all kinds of shamus and savim and svarim to the what had been the rabbi's you know office or study. Um, so in theory, he could have left it there. I think uh, he felt that this was something that you know, it's not pichti that it's not for naught that he that he had it, and it must be it's his role in life to do something with it. Unfortunately, he never really he, he had a lot of things that he was involved with the cloud, but this was just something that he didn't really have, um, you know, something to to focus on. He did not focus on this.
0: So is that what pushed you to publish it and, and fund it and decide to to go ahead with this project? Lilanishpas, your father.
1: Very much so. is the My father. I haven't. It's a. It's a dangerous hobby. But I. I. I, I started. I. I started collecting svarim. Um, particularly, I have like little niches that I like to to buy, and one of them is svarim that were printed in Slovakia and Hungary after the Holocaust. There were still two, three, four years where they were publishing dishes svarim. There aren't that many. Or or like lost causes, like I have sparring that were printed in Beirut in the 1950s uh, or the Soviet Union. There's a couple of sparring. I'm very happy to have one that was printed in Leningrad in 1924. And I said to myself, here I am, you know, plunking down dollars for, you know, sparring when I have something that I'm sitting on that was never even out there that nobody's ever seen. And so I started uh, to figure out what am I going to do with it? Um, like I said, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I'm a real estate attorney. My practice is in New York and New Jersey, and real estate attorneys use title companies. So um, I usually use, uh, I'm very happy with Riverside Abstract, uh, the sales agent that I use, his name is David Bernay. I should call him Rabbi David Bernay. He's a of, of of Merit as well. And he's really into Masachis Psochem, so much so that he actually wrote a safer on Masachist Psochem. So I, I mentioned to him that I have the Ksafiadi and he told me that there's a a gentleman who lived in Ponovich for many years. His name is Moshe Heller, lives in Kiyot Sefer, who was the editor of his safer. And I said to myself, okay, maybe I can make this work. I have children there, saw. So I visit there a lot. Let me go meet with him, Moshe Heller and tell, explain to him what I got and see if he can you know, help me here. So he was great. He was able to find somebody who could type up the Ksav Yad, a man named Yisrael, Yosef Friedman, not related, never spoke to him. <laughs> I dealt with him only through over Heller. But he gave the entire, I, 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 the Xaviad was was scanned and emailed to Israel, typed up and then Moshe Heller put the horos uh, on it. So all of a sudden now, even though I don't really have connections in this world, um, I had a lot of um, uh, what to go with. I had the uh, the safe typed up with the Harris and I just needed to put the thing together and do the final finish. It was many years since my father passed away in 2015. I was around with it for, you know, four or five years sometimes starts and stops. But at the end of the day and in, during this time, I had some very interesting conversations, which hopefully will come to about the nature of the safer with all kinds of rabbanim. Uh, But at the end of the day, I, I, I was able to put this thing together. And it finally came out uh, during Sviva this year. um, Actually, last year, we could say. Um, And I, I felt when I picked it up. I felt like almost like I had a child. You know, this is something that my father is now able to contribute to high level Torah learning, even though, you know, whatever he suffered and whatever, you know, detractions he had in his Jewish education to be able to contribute through his efforts, which I thought was just a tremendous thing.
0: Yeah, really an amazing story. And, uh, you know, like I said before, it really is, uh, you know, your father and you that we have the Sefer and, and you included uh, in the edition, there is a Hagdama in here, you included uh, 10 pages where you go through, you follow the story and you do relay this story. So for those who you know we'll, we'll talk about at the end, you're interested in purchasing the Sefer, getting a copy of the Sefer, it's in there, they can see this as well. Okay, so now let's turn to the Sefer. Uh, I think you mentioned, or maybe not, is that the Xaviad is in a very hard to read handwriting at places, but it and it doesn't say, there's no like, Sharba it doesn't say the name, but it does say of Avram in big black letters. And uh, we already mentioned it's Avram Avli, Zilin Freund. Um, first of all, how did you know that this was him? Because there was no Shav. Then I mean, we could talk about who he was and the style of safer. But how did you find out who w- was the Mechaber? Okay, so
1: there, there, there are two, three very eyes uh, their proofs, you know, that we can uh, say the prove he's the Mechaber. First of all, the name Pnei Avram. Um, when I got older in YU, you know, I studied history. I took a lot of courses in, in Bernadette. I, I know my way around Jewish history. And I said, there's a safer called Pnei Avram on Chulin. Printed by a rav in Kasho uh, in uh, 1878. I said that's so. I, and here, this is Nachulin. I mean, if it would have been Nachulin still no writer, That's not him. But uh, I said, well, in in the Hakdama of the Sefer, the Machaber writes that he has chidushim on many mesechtis, including Pesachim, Gitin, and Baba Metzia, and that he only would like to publish him, but he doesn't have the money to do it. So that I thought was you know it, it's not uh, it's foolproof, but it's a very good proof. That, uh, that this is that, especially because it was found in Kasho and has the same, same exact name. This is before I could read a word of the Sefer. Um, then, um, reading the Sefer, and I haven't gone through the whole Sefer, I'll admit, not all 900 pages yet, but I saw in there, this is a totally um, Eisenhower proof. He wrote that this and is, and I printed this Chidush Torah in my father's Sefer, which is called Shari Chayim, which was printed in 1860 so and so. So sure enough, you look up that sefer, which was written by the father of this mechaber, and you see that in the beginning, there's a a chidrash of the son, revavim avliakoyin, steel and Freund. So that, I think, is foolproof. Um, One more thing that came out when the sefer was about to go to print, I saw in one of the Jewish auction houses that they were selling a letter by this mechaber written, uh, it's basically uh, a letter of a a recommendation of somebody going there to saw, they should get into a good yeshiva, Written in the 1880s. And I showed that, and, and there was a photocopy of the, of the letter in the auction um, catalog. So I emailed that to Rabbi Heller. I said, Is this the same handwriting? said, 100%. So that, that solved a different question. Some people told me, Well, maybe he wrote it, but maybe somebody else rewrote it for him. So now we know that that's not true, that this Xavier yeah, is the actual autograph of the Mechaber, not just his, his Torah. So all that came late in the game. I would have published this even if it was on Kabbalah. <laughs> it's just anything that my father saved with that kind of story, even if I had no interest in it, I would have published it. But as we're going to see, I think that it came out that my father was able to yarsh into us something that really spoke to my heart without, without, you know, that I'm only coming to realize at this point in the game. So that, to to go back to your who Rabbi Selim was, I think I have to um, give you a little abdama about what Pasha was, and before that, what Hungary was. So the first thing I think that your audience, I'm sure, is very well familiar with Svarim and with the concept Hungarian, but I think I have to modify it a little because it's not always what we think it is. First of all, before 1750, let's say, there were very few Jews living in what we call Hungary. There was only a little part of Austria that's called Bergenland, which was, had been part of the Austrian Empire, which was which was, um, which was uh, where Rabbi Kiv Eger came from, like Eisenstadt, and then Pressburg. But besides those areas, the, a lot of what we call Hungary, Jews were not allowed to live there. It was only when Poland broke up as a country in the late 1700s, and, and it became part of, like Galicia became part of the Ostern, it became possible for Jews to move into Hungary itself. So the Kahila and Kasho, for instance, really only started in 1840. And a lot of these killers were like that, uh, Munkac, Satmar, all the places that we believe as Hungarian, you know, Tifa, Ungaran, they were not dory Doris of hundreds of years of, of Yishuv. It was only a basically a hundred-year settlement. Now, uh, quick, uh, in about 30 years later, when the Hungarians got more autonomy in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they started to say, let's make Seder among the Jews. We don't know what the Jews are. We don't know who we can be after the army, who's born, who can be taxed. So we need to have kahilas. We need to have organizations so we can keep vital statistics about our Jews. And so they made the Jewish communities make official kahilas. So, by this time, a lot of Western Hungary was influenced by the reform. They had their own Hungarian version of reform called Neolog. And so, when it came time for Kahilas to form, lots of times the, the, the Kahilas were controlled by reform rabbis. And that got uh, the Talmidim of Samsov, so he was already gone by then. The We were very opposed to that. And that's where the term orthodox really comes from. They, they came to the Hungarian government and they petitioned and said, we know that legally you're recognizing these Kahillas. We want you to recognize a parallel Kahilla. They're the Neolog and we're the Orthodox. And with a lot of lobbying, they got the government to recognize officially Orthodox Kahillas. But then the next thing that happened was, and this is the late 1860s, some Kahilas didn't know they were equally divided. The modern rich people wanted to be Neolog. The younger, the, the, the firmer and the less affluent people wanted to be Orthodox. And they would fight who owns the shul, who owns the Besakhaim, who Shita. And so there was a third group that came and said, We don't want this. We don't want to have fighting between the Jews. We want to be with the status quo that we were before the government started to make us declare who we were. We want to be. Uh, just Jews, and whoever comes to shul comes to shul, whoever doesn't, doesn't. They called themselves status quo ante, which is Latin for status quo before. They wanted to be what they were, and they also petitioned the government to get recognition. So that you ended up in the bigger cities in Hungary with three kinds of kehillips, orthodox, neolog, and status quo. Now the status quo were, they davened the way we davened. They said all the piyutim. They They kept all the mitzvahs the way orthodox Jews kept them. The only thing is that they weren't willing to declare themselves as orthodox as opposed to anything else. But you can imagine that some of the radical orthodox and and the the firmest of the rabbis were very much against the status quo, not because of what they did, but because they didn't want to take a stance against the neolog. So this rabbi, this is also interesting for my father, this rabbi was the rub of the status quo kehila in which is very interesting because usually a status quo road would be more modern. If he was gonna write it would be on Midrash, it would be in German or in Hungarian or maybe in a you know easier Hebrew. You didn't have Status quo rabbonim, with one exception that we'll come to it in a minute. Um you didn't have Status quo rabbonim who wrote Chidushim in Pilpul style on the So uh he was in a in a sense uh the class by himself he, i know from his history, which is nowhere to be found in the Iskidushim, that he got involved in kahila stuff he was at one point he left kasho for five six years and then came back so he was a he, he had a, 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 a an interesting life as a as a as a rabbi but not not anything that's relevant to the safer um so as I said he was the status quo of Where did he learn? That's, I know, a question. I've been listening to so many of your podcasts, and I know that's a question that always comes up. And you also probably know that somebody was born in 1810, he dies around 1890, so he's really a 19th century person. Uh, He doesn't have a yeshiva to go to if he's born in southern uh, Poland, Galicia. And he didn't. He learned with his father first, who wrote, as I said, a sefer called Shari Chaim, um, and then he learned with, uh, which is Amaseches Beitza, And then he learned with his mother's brother, uh, whose name was Rabbi Lev, wrote a sefer called Shem and Rokeach. Again, you can go to you know yeshiva for twenty years and never have heard of these svarim. Uh, and that's part of my agenda here. Um, so Rabbi Lev was not a, con, a katu bagman. Let's say he was not not, not a, a, a low level uh, rav. To give you an example, you know that the Ksam Sofer was the son-in-law of Rabbi Kivayger, but he wasn't that much different in age. They were only about a year apart in age. He was born a year later. He died a year earlier. About that, so the Khsam Sofer and the it was like he was fifty. He was over fifty when he married Rabbi Kivayger's daughter, who was in her early twenties. So they were in effect contemporaries. And Ksam Sofer in 1815, Rabbi Kivayger was in a, was a rav. He wasn't yet in Posen. And he wanted a better steller. He actually wanted to go to Posen. There was like a two-year fight in Posen to get Rebbe Kiva Eger in. So during this fight in 1815, another another steller came up in Moravia, which then had a lot more than in the 1900s. And this steller came up, and uh, it was in a place called Trest T R E S T. And Chassam was pushing for Rebbe Kiva Eger to get it, but Rebbe Lezalev got the got the steller. So chosen, you know, he was chosen over in Kivayger for the stellar. Eventually, he also went to Hungary, uh, and he ended his life in in, in Hungary. Uh, he wrote many svarim, uh, usually with the name Shevan Rokeach. There's Shemun Rokeach and Psachim. There's others and Tshuva Shevan Rokeach. And as I said, he was a parallel to Chassam Sofer, about the same age, um, and uh, but there was a whole. You know, there was a whole group of these Rabbanim who came from Galicia who were going into the new territory of Hungary in the early 1800s. He was one of them. Sam himself was one of them, arguably. And uh, these were uh, people who uh, were parallel, but you didn't learn much about them because what happened was the Sam Sofer's so many of them became Rabbanim in Hungary, and that eventually they kind of drowned out the whole other parallel, you know, ma'arechet of Rabbanim that were existing. So he, he was his Rebbe, his uncle, for a short time, he was his son-in-law, and um, uh, he was his father-in-law, that, he married his first cousin for a short time. And so he was basically um, his Rebbe, mover. And um, he himself is a big Talmud um, You can see from the Sefer that he wrote, which we'll talk about the tochen soon. Uh, as I said, he published three Svarim in his lifetime. He published one in 1865, when he was about 55, called Pras Ovos. That's more like Drush, it's on Pirkei Ovas, on Saba de Be'atuni, on uh, the Agadas of Rabba Baruchana. But even in there, he has he has Drushes and he has Shias and shuvas that are pretty heavy. And then he p- published the Pnei Avram, which is a similar to the Sefer Republished, which is on Chulin. And then, very interestingly, in 1886, when he's at the end of his life, he publishes a safer called Agra de Hespeda and the main thing is a Hesped on Moses Montefiori, who had very little to do with Hungarian Jewry, from what I understand. What prompted him to write that, I have no idea. Uh, but even in that safer, there are a lot of Chidusha Torah and Shalat and as, as well. So um, we have, as I said, we have we have a safer here that I felt that uh, Okay, so now it starts to we're talking like 3 4 years ago by now already I'm starting to get word versions of the safer and I look at it and I ask myself, le me on the mail. you know, who, who's going to who's going to what's the safer about and who's going to who's going to want to learn it. So I'm asking. I, ask I, I,
0: I want to jump in for a second. Before I talk more about the safer, um you know, what's interesting, you talk about the status quo and we can we can talk a little more, but but even though he was a status quo, uh, Rav as you said, he's a kind of classical Hungarian style. We'll get into like style Svarim, and you mentioned he has a statement from play of and He has major Haskamas there. He has Haskama from the Devei Chaim of Sans, He has Haskama from the Chiddusherim. He has Haskama from. Um, I'm looking at, it. oh, his cousin, who I don't think you mentioned yet, you should talk yes. about him. He has the who's who of Rabbanim of Haskamas here. So we should just uh, clarify that. And there's more Haskamas here. I think also, so, and if you want to talk about the Haskamas, we just wanted to make sure that we emphasize that for the listeners.
1: Oh, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you some more, which is interesting. He was a, he was like an everyman. Everybody liked him. Uh, I uh, There is a, when I started doing research on him, I found, uh, I was doing research on Kasho as well, and I found that there was this uh, publication called the Zeitschrift for the Geschichte der the Juden in Czechoslovakia, the, the, the history, uh, the, the, the periodical for the history of the Jews in Czechoslovakia, which was published in Czechoslovakia in the late 1920s, early 1930s in German. And uh, my Yiddish, I guess, was good enough for me to understand a bit of the German. And so the, 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 the neolog rabbi of Kasho in the late in the 1930s wrote two articles on the history of the Kahila, which was at that time only about 90 years old. So when it came time to writing about the status quo, he was raving about Rabbi Silent Freud. He called him a Hillel, Hillelischer type. He said he was the kind of like Hillel. He got along. He wasn't Shama. You know, he could. He didn't get angry. He got along with the with the neolog. He got along with the Orthodox. He was the kind of Jew that. He, um, got you know was you know and uh, so it was funny uh, t- it's amazing to see he had tremendous askamas from gaonim from the gaonim of his generation whom he met whom he discussed you know and they write in there that they, they discussed the Torah with him and including let's mention Reb Yolev as well for a moment So Reb was the grandson of the Shaman and Rokeach or Reb Lezolev Reb son uh, older son was Vinyamin Wolflev. Wolf Lev who wrote a wonderful sefer, which, again, you don't know about, even if you learned in yeshiva, in yeshiva it's, about, it's called Shari Torah, and it's basically Klaleh HaShas, which was a popular genre in the 19th century. So he wrote a sefer called Shari Torah, and in there, the also Dushim from his son, Rebim Yolev. Rebim was, he also was an everyman in a certain sense. Rebim Yalev was a staunch status quo rabbi. He was in effect the gadol hador of the status quo movement because he was by far the uh, maybe not by far because we have our Ar- but he was one of the greatest of their uh, of their talmidechachamim. And I don't uh, the number is a very small number of of you know status quo rabbanim who wrote lamdashevarim. We have Rav Lev and we have Armachaber, who is again his first cousin once removed. Rav Lev was uh, like a lot of these people; he had the same biography: born in, in Galicia, moved to. Che- uh, to Moravia, to the um, western parts of what was Czechoslovakia, but eventually ended up in Hungary. The Rebunia Lev ended up in Eel, which, if you know, uh, I've called, I don't know the long Hungarian pronunciation, Sator Ujely, U U J H E L Y is the way you would write Il in Hungarian. Eel is very famous even today because it was the place where the Yismach Moshe, the first St. Marebek, was rough. And if you know the history, which I'll tell you in a half a minute, when the when the Yisrach Moshe's son uh, did not follow him at Eel, his father-in-law was a Rav in, in Poland, in Drahubic, so he went to Drahubic, but his grandson, the thing of Yukasiel Yehuda Taliban, who we mentioned before, where who is my great-grandfather's rov, his grandson, so Moshe's grandson took over in Eel. When, when he took over, the community was by far Ashkenazish. They did not want to have a Hasidic Rav. They made him sign a declaration that he won't daven this, he will only daven Nisachashkenaz, even if he's davening at home. Uh, he didn't live up to it, and there was a bunch of fights. Eventually, he left Eel for five years, and the community was looking for somebody who would be very staunchly uh, in favor of Nisachashkenaz and Alderman Hagin that they thought were important. And they hired Rav Yumi because they knew he would be somebody who wouldn't take any... Uh, it wouldn't allow for any inroads in the uh, of Hasidim and Eos, and in fact, that is when, uh, the, uh, when that's when the uh, y- the Yitavle moved to Siget and that's why the Satmar Shusheles comes from Siget and Satmar, because they left Eo because Rabbi Yirmiyahle was on his uh, you know on his campaign against them. So Rabbi Yirmiyahle is a very interesting person, but here's the irony of it. He wrote a sefer called Divrei Yimio on uh, the first few parts of the Rambam. I think it's uh, Mada, Ava, and Zmanim. Uh, Also, big lump, nothing there about about status quo, rabbanis. And they found, like Armachaber, they found Kiddushim that he wrote uh, on Masechus Kiddushim that were published, I think, by Machon Yerushalayim about 15, 20 years ago. Now, what's fascinating is who the haskavas on that sefer are. You have the Minchas Yitzhak, right? Uh, from the Eidah Haredes, or Weiss. and you have Rev Brosner, who's also Hungarian, and they write about how Rev Yimilev was such an opponent of the Neolog, which he was. They just leave out the part about him being a, stance, a staunch uh, status quo robe. So, uh, you know, there's there's a place, and this is, you know, this is one of the Rabbanim I spoke to about the, this Mechab. So, what am I doing putting out a saver on the status quo robe? And they said, you know, gam avasam, gam sinasam, gam kinasam at this point, very few people uh, know about it, although I didn't want to paper it over. So it, it is mentioned by Rabbi Yokatan in the, his, his Hakdama to the Sefer. So we're not hiding anything here. So um, um, that I think would lead me to the Sefer itself. Or... Yeah,
0: I, th- I, th- I think that does. Yeah, no, we definitely uh, should discuss and I'm sure there's more to discuss I And mean, You're giving me an education on Hungarian history and status quo history. And like you said, it is mentioned in Rabbi el uh, you know, he also has a short movie. So I think I mentioned you have a movie, then there's us, you have your introduction mainly about your father's story and about the Ksaviyat. And then there's Rabbi El-Khatan is a short one about the Sefer and the Makhaber and uh, there's the, you printed, there's some few askamas that you got, you can talk about, and then there's the askamas of the safer. you know, you reprinted the askamas that the Mechaber himself got for, Chulun and others, et cetera. But we should talk about the safer because we've talked, right. now we've given your father's background, the Mechaber's background, about the oh, safer. Oh, yeah, I also
1: don't want to, I don't want to leave out my children, who I, I'm very proud of. I, my ch- I also asked uh, some of my children to write, uh, and they also put in a few words there, too. So this is my chance to give them uh, some, some, uh, FaceTime in the uh, in the world of Sfarim, uh, and they did great. I think, um, yeah. So, um, yeah. The 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 safer itself was well. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll start going back to my my uh, my education. So my education was kind of very uh, very jaded. I mean, I, I went to my Orthodox day school. I spoke it, you know, fluently when I was thirteen. Then I went to this. They're not as yeshivish as the other Yeshivas, but is still yeshivish enough for me to have you know. I said to myself, although they have their own shnit, their own way of learning. But I got some kind of exposure to to that, and actually, my my tenth grade rabbi, I think I learned the most from in high school, was um, Rabbi Bash, who's I think a Torah Tzemima now. Was, he was first starting out, and uh, he was a talmud of Van Cutler, and I've had a really great um, you know introduction to uh, a Lakewood train from the old Lakewood. Um, so I, I really did have that, and I had my my. It happens to be that my mother's brother and all my first cousins are all Satmar Hasidim. Uh, which my father, you know, obviously uh, gets along fine with, get along fine with. So I, I kind of had this. All, all our um, closest relatives in America, who you know were were not Merkhasidim, so I knew them. I knew the Maran Arutz. I was always trying to put it all together, and I was always interested in Svarim and interested in where things come from and where people come from. And um, it's about my reading. I always read about, and I'm sure you have to all the people who are against Pilpul. You read about this guy who's gonna this guy's gonna and how bad Pilple was and how he, but nobody really tells you one, two things I always wanted to know. Who did write Pilpul? And what is Pilpul? Not necessarily in that order. You know, and I I I, I you know I, I kind of pushed every now and then when I came across Yadonim, you know, know about these things. I I I found that um, it was sold to me that the half uh is a good example. Have you heard that? A classic example of people, Suvas, which I found very interesting because the, the Khsam Sofer, I think he gets away on un, uh, unfairly. I don't think he was such an opponent of people. <laughs> I haven't gone through a little Khsam Sofer here and I think there's plenty of people in the Khsam Sofer. But the Chassam Sofer was his Talmud of course. And uh, you know it, I found it interesting because you know it he, he the Hafla is not studied today, um, even though everybody knows about it. And then you get to the Pnei Yishua, which I had an argument with one of the people who was involved in the Sefer, because I wrote in my Hektama, I said, that I know, and, and this was a guess that I proved true. I said, I know that today they hardly learn Pnei Yishua, except maybe when the Ktos quotes the Pnei but people don't really learn Pnei Yeshua, And then uh, and, and somebody said, no, that's wrong. And I said, okay, let me let me find out. So I, I asked the people around the Waius farm sale, oh, which is going on now, I said, how many Pnei Yishuas did you sell last year? The number was very low. Um, and then I asked somebody else, I know so who's a big uh, seller of Svarim, how much, and he said, you know, I sell, but it's no proof because a lot of them are bar mitzvah gifts. I, too, get the sense that Paneh Yeshua is not the kind of learning. Uh, you know, there's this brisk derech, And then I was speaking to, I, I met a lot of rabbinim. I was speaking to one who's a, he's a rab of a, a branch of a chassidist in Williamsburg. And um, he sends his kids to St. Mur- um, yeshiva, you know, the major Satma Yeshiva in, in, in Brooklyn and I said he said to me, you know, at every level in the Satma Yeshiva there are two Shirim, at least in the son's Yeshiva. There's a Shir given, both given by Satma Hasidim. One is the Hungarian Derech and one is by the Satma and it's the Briska Derech. And everybody is trying to get out of the Hungarian Shir and into the Briska Yeshiva, including my own sons. And it really bothers me. That, that's, that's what he told me. So, And then I spoke to somebody else who told me, you know, there is a safer, which is again, maybe we heard of it, very few people have ever opened it, called Kikayan Diyana. that Michal Ber Weismondel, who certainly was a, a product of Hungarian yeshivas, uh, was very much uh, a proponent of. Uh, the stories that he went to England before the war to research Kistayada, the safer. He put out a scientific edition of the safer before the war. It was one of the first things he did when he came to America and he established the printing press in Mount Kisco. He printed it again. And people tell me, nobody looks at the Kikai in Mount Kisco today.
0: I, I want to jump in. It's interesting. kind beyond Vienna, Tuman Frankel on SAS. he was in Prague in uh, about the, the 17th century. He, it actually was just reprinted, meaning it was printed by just a basic, you read which is but just this basic, like, new font. And it was out of print for a while. They just reissued it. Again, it's nothing fancy, no notes. It's not a critical edition, but it is back in print, interestingly. I want to point out also about the Pnei Yeshua. Interestingly, I'm not going to take a stance on how much they do or don't. I, I, it is pretty learned in the standard yeshivas is why, you know, as far as I recall from learning in yeshiva. But it, it, another thing about selling it, just I would point out it is in the Karvitz Mepharsim. Right. So standard, standard, yeah. standard yeshiva guys, they have the Pnei Yeshua there. Now, you want to know if it's used as much anymore as it was and now it's learning Rabur Ber and Chaim and and other things. Okay, you know, and whatever, but to some extent. Point but, okay. but point 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 taken. And um yeah, yeah continue continue on about the about the and, uh, the and the purple.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to see. I'm 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 sitting on the outside. I live in Tinek. You know, I haven't learned in yeshiva in over 40 years. And I and I you know I talk to people when I you know know that they're learning yeshiva. I don't really know what goes on there, but I do and I don't because I, I go to this farm stores. I see what people buy. I see what people are learning and what they're not learning. And so I kind of make my own conclusion. My my kids always make fun of that. Uh, my uh, conclusions are always uh, ill-supported. But uh, uh, in this case, I, I, I'm not going to give up so easily. So I, I always wanted to know what Pilpal was. And I, I said to myself, you know, and, and you, have, you, have, you have a double Mayim Gnubim Yutaku here. You have Mayim Gnubim if you're Hungarian and you grew up learning that the status quo were really terrible. So here you have a Safer that there's nothing wrong with, but it happens to be written by a status quo. Rough. So that, that, that could be somebody who would be interested in the Safer ipso facto, no matter, you know, what style it is. And then there's the political incorrectness of the Safer. That you know, you have to say and I I I made some statistics for the sake of this conversation, and uh, about what his you know what his is, or the, his you know his, what does he have when he comes to learn mesecta this mechaber of the silund point, how does he learn a masehta? like you gave a show which I listened to found very interesting about what we have on psachim, right? Um, so when when somebody comes out of yeshiva, it doesn't matter if it's Wayu, brisk or whatever they come, even Satmar as we said. They're gonna they're gonna want to know what we're showing them are there on the on the But that's not the way these 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 mechabrim, and, and they're very obscure Mechabrim. This is on a certain day the tkufa, you know, after the Shah, before you know the brisk and the Litfax took over the whole learning, you know, industry. There was a tkufa where people wrote people svarim, and they really were interested in very, very few svarim. Um, so of course you have Rashi, tosvus uh the Rambam, he could be used as a foil, and the Ravid, and then the Pnei Yeshua, of course, the Maram Shif is very big for the uh, for the Pilpal world, and not very big. I don't think people are learning Maram Shif. <laughs> Certainly not the way they're learning Pnei Yeshua, But you know, he's very big in this in this world. And then there's these kind of Sparim that some of them I hardly heard of, and some I never heard of. So let's take our three masechthas, okay? Sachim. He quotes the Shemem Emrokeach, which is a sefer that very few people know about, which, of course, is his uncle and his Rebbe. He quotes him 52 times. He quotes or Chadash, which some people heard of. Or Chadash, I once heard by uh, and then before he, before he quoted the Orchadash, he said, there's this Pilpolish Hungarian saver called Orchadash. He couldn't just say Orchadash because nobody in the audience, even they were talking Chachamim, would have heard of the Orkhadash otherwise. But Rav Shachda, uh, he's one of the people who does learn these kinds of spharm. So you have the Orkhadash who lived a generation or so before the Mechaber. He quotes him 79 times. Then in Gittin, there's no or there's no, there's no Shem HaRokeach. In Gittin, there was a Sefer that he quotes 188 times. And every time I met the Talmud Mekacham during this project, I would ask him, have you heard of the Sefer Kedusha HaSisro? And invariably, the answer would be no. Nobody ever heard of the Sefer Kedusha which uh, which has a very nice comma from some Sofer. written again almost uh, half a generation before this Sefer. Um... I don't think it's been reissued. You can tell me. Um, I know the Or Chadash, I think, has, but the Kedushi um has not been. And that is his go to safer, other than, uh, you know, Gemara, Rashi, mar Marsha, although i forgot the Marsha, Marsha, Maram Shift, um, and Pneoshua, and then the Kedushi Hasra. And that's the way he learned. And we'll get to, I want to go a little more, a little further than how he learned in a second, but just, just this farm that he's quoting. So his his view of what's available and what's not available is much different than almost everybody uh, else today's view would be. And in Baba Mitsia, uh, the same thing. There he doesn't have um, there he doesn't have the uh, those farmers. He basically he quotes he quotes the Pineashua 191 times because he doesn't have a Kiddushali, he doesn't have an Urkadash, and there there aren't that many Pilpul swarm, I guess, between him and those grades. So what is he doing? What is Pilpul? Well, let me give you my definition. At least you can get it out there. And I think it's, um, you know, it comes uh, it comes a little bit from the Wikipedia article in Hebrew about Pilpul. And it comes also from just having, you know, asked a lot of people what it is. So, you know, the Al-Kagam, right? Avai and Reva arguing the Alkagam. So Pilpul, and this is another Behuda. This is not just somebody, this is somebody we did hear of. It has a say for, I think it's called, which is like, uh, halakhic droshes, he gives you pilpul explaining why every one of these things is one shita. If you hold like a rubber in Yud, you have to hold like him in Ay. If you hold like him in Ay, you have to hold like him in Lame. So all six things which we would say have nothing to do with each other. These are just simonim in the Gemara. That pilpul will tell you things which we know. He starts from a per- perspective that we'll say is not true. There is no connection between all the shitas of rabba and Yalkegam and all the shitas of Ravah and Yalkegam. But to get there, to do that, you have to be a tremendous Talmud Chacham. So you can, when you read Pilpul, it, it, let's, can we backtrack for a moment? Let's talk about Chumash, right? In Chumash, we have tolerance for that, right? Even the people who go to Litvish Yeshivas, right? And they say, all right, if I want to know pshat and Chumash, I'm going to learn the Malveh, or I'm going to learn aksavah Kabal, or the Nitziv, Right? If I want to drush on chumish, I got the base on lady obviously from Brisk, right? If I want to drush on chumish, I have—I uh, don't know—you know, you have obviously know, uh, Yonason, you have you know whatever you know, you have uh, Yarus Tovash, you have you have a hundred pilpals for him on chumish, and it doesn't matter to me if uh, you know you have uh, Mishnah Lamelach, right? The, what's it called? Parashas drachen, right? The, uh, uh, that that and are arguing with the same focus as, but right? the Shita is another big pippel thing to take. A and B in one machokas and C and D in the other one and say A has to hold like C and B has to hold like D, which we would say is not mochorach. And that's what pilpul is. So when it's in chumash, we don't mind. We have tolerance for that. But when it's in gemara, it just kind of like gets erased. There is no svarim no between the Rishonim and now, unless they're the kind of svarim that write the way the Rishonim do. So when it comes to pilpal svarim, they have the same tolerance for learning gemara that way that we have for learning chumash that way. So why would you want to learn the Mishnah and the, the Parshish Drachim? Not because you want to, you believe Yaakov and Asif really argue this way, but the longest in there, the ideas that you can get, the whole structure is itself intellectually stimulating. You get a feel for what learning was like and you learn a lot on the way. It's an intellectual workout, so to speak. So what I think this sefer does is exactly that. The the chidushim that are there are not the kind of chidushim that you'll find in the Granat, or, you know, this you remember Shlomo Hayman, or Nachum, or whatever else they're, you know, putting out today, and they're not conceptual, and they're based on these kind of, um, you know, usually it starts with a, tosa says this, Kasha, ignore Tosa's Teret, you know, the, that joke, you know, why does Boratia start with an olive? What's the answer? You can tell me it doesn't, right? right? <laughs> exactly. That's one yeah. <laughs> That's one <teret. laughs> That's the... That's the uh, so I would say different terrents. So it's the same thing. You're starting with, you know, Tosis asked a question. who gives a good terrents. Ignore Tosas terrents. And you go, you get, spend two pages to show me these two shitas before we get to Tosas. Let's understand what the Bible we arguing about. It's the same as Rav and Rose and this other Masechta. And now that we answer that, we can go back to Tosas question and we can answer the Tosas question this way. So you're getting an intellectual workout. Uh, you have to know a lot of other sugyas. Yeah, a lot of other, uh, you know, a lot of other shitas. And you may or may not agree with it, but at the end of the day, you're you're learning. And I I I, I think if you get up in the morning, you say because of Torah, and that's the only thing you do. I think you won't in the midst of lima not Torah. Even though even though you can argue that you know for sure that the maskana isn't isn't uh, you know it's not mochrah. But um, so that that to me was something I always wanted. I always wanted a safer. Then, and I've looked at that flaw and honestly, I've been looking at that Law the last few weeks, and I'm looking at this safer, and I think Armachaber is a very good writer. I'm not going to say better, but I think he's a great writer. And what you have in your hand, then, is a safer that if your uh, talmud who wants to know what it is that the Briska was coming to, to supplant, or what it was, what was Gomorrah learning like from 1700 to 1900, before the oil came into being and kind of uh, took over, you have something now in your hand that you can be, but the Macabre, whose, whose style of writing is very, it's easy to understand. And, and you'll see how he builds the arguments and how he sets up this whole kind of pill uh, for you. So in a way, my father gave me something that I always wanted with this Sabyad.
0: You mentioned the Darish scene of the Nei Dei Yehuda by Gum. Gam. Um, so, a, a good place for those interested in hearing more, or much more, is a lot more to talk about pilpul, um, is Rabbi Dr. David Katz, who uh, has a podcast. He's, his his uh, dissertation on the Nei Dei Yehuda, he goes, uh, you know, he has a really fabulous overview of pilpul, and he talks a lot about this. For those interested, well, ah, that's me.
1: I really appreciate that. Yeah.
0: I, I can send you. I can send you. Uh, a pdf of it and people can ask me and uh, yeah so he's 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 fantastic I recommend his podcast of course and uh but he, he just goes through purple very much in his uh, dissertation um so so the style of the safer then as you mentioned is really a pilpal style so people listeners shouldn't expect if they're interested in misaqta coming up with the they shouldn't expect they're going to find something here a small and gafe some little ha'ara. is it more maracha? is it more like a yes maracha? so how how is what's the style just in general like lengthwise of the pieces is only purple what's the is there ever well so like haras do you Kim, or not really
1: good question okay so i would say that 85% of the of the 900 pages are chidushim that take about a page and a half or two pages each um, basically starting with Akasha from Tosis or from Rishon or something like that. Well, I'd say one to four pages uh, of, of Chidushim. By the way, he has a lot on the Agarita too, which is also interesting. So you don't, you know, uh, and he'll take it apart in a Pilpalistic way. So you have people on Agarita, he doesn't skip the Agarita. And then sachim and, uh, and even the skin, you know, on the, uh, the, the Fifth parak, you'll find stuff for him to say and and Bob there's also a in the pay dollar around there, and you'll find him talking there too. So he's his typical comment is he's Marek. It's uh, it's it, it's it's at least 25 lines, and it could be, you know, one to four pages. And that's as I said, about 80, 85 percent of the of the safer. Mixed in with that, he has two other kinds of additions. Uh, one addition is he's got thrushes. Uh, that he gave. Like you can imagine that the Shabbos D'rushes, some of the Shabbos D'rushes show up in Sochem. He even tells you the date that he gave it and the place, because I said he wasn't only in Kasho for a while, he was in this town in Poland called Zoloshitz, and so he says this is the Shabbos D'rush I gave in Zoloshitz. If it's no get to that, daf. So that'll be a three, four, five, six page, uh, again, pil-pul. Um, And then what I find really fascinating, and I'm sorry I didn't, I should have in the table of contents I should have set these apart again I'll you know I'll say to Radhaf, he will give a 10 page essay on a topic um, that's no you know that that shows up in the Masechta. so I'll, I'll give you and there are about I'd say about nine ten of those throughout the Sefer. and as I said they go on for 10 15 pages uh, of uh here so here's examples I made min vimino which comes up in Psochim, right? So he's got 10 pages, and that's a great workout if you're, you know, learning Tarubas. And just again, you're not, it's not the style of learning, but you'll, it'll, it'll, you'll test your skill as as a learner to go, to go through it. Mariko Stifa, again, from Psochim. Shema Yechape, which is obviously from Gittin. He has a, a like a whole essay on Shema Yechape. Um, Let's see. That's to me is very interesting. He got brisker stuff. He got some kachim stuff in uh, in the in the fifth parak of Gittin, uh, and so in, in each of those, and there are about four or five others, he has these essays where he'll give you his you know well crafted uh, analysis of the of the of the issue, and so you can actually learn those independently. And you can just take one of those and say, you know what, I'm going to master one populistic essay and go through that. I, I, this saver basically is not for the faint of heart. I think it's, it's for somebody who's learning full time uh, and is not in a cola where they require him to learn particular things. And so he has the, you know, to learn and to become more, well, you know, broad minded in his learning. Or somebody may not like my age, getting you know a little closer to retirement, and had a good Jewish education. Understand? will have time to sit and Harvard in this, and uh, you know, with a few days' work, you can go through one of these essays and come out really you know, knowledgeable in, in in the in the topic. Uh, you're looking for one of the
0: essays, and what you see is interesting. Is that he has, like you said, he has an as well which is yeah. uh, very interesting. And yeah, now, now something else about the like same, you mentioned it's 900 pages, Psachim, Gittin, and Pometsia. Yeah, not all, not complete. Some of the so we were missing a little, right? I think Psachim starts in, uh, in, the te- missing, in
1: the second right. but, uh, Besides Psachim, which is missing the the, the first parakel and a bit of the second Um the other ones, we have almost the entire thing, like the first page, probably the Psachim, the, the which uh, is it, different colors. It must have been sewn together at some point. And probably the first and last page, uh, the first and last, the last page of, of the other two masachas got lost. But we have like 99% of Baba matia and 99% of Gittin. So, um, and uh, I, I must say the uh, Rabbi Heller, Moshe Heller himself is a machaber. He wrote a sefer on, on Taros called Be'er Miriam. And he, he edited dozens of these Hungarian scar. And he did a great job. He didn't overload you with... Uh, with Marma Como. So what, what, when I say 900 pages, you can, like I said, I, I'd say 95% of it is the Deve Amachaber himself.
0: Yeah. And you have light, light, uh, light horrors. There are horrors on here, but it's my, mainly, it's not, they're not long, extensive ones. Generally, they try to just state uh, basics, right. being the science to unim or what we would call, but there are as well, but the lighter ones. So okay, and I'll try to to find the link, and you know, any interested listeners can purchase it. It should be available in general's farm store as well. I will um,
1: mention. Uh, that's a good question, actually. I would say this uh, for anybody's listening in Israel. It's obviously available to the Machan Shlomo Alman. It's on their website. Um, if you're, you're in the U.S., I know that it came to Eisen and it's also in, available in um, um, in Zundovements farm stores. Uh, we only printed five hundred. Um, and uh, I took for myself about 150, and I know at least um, 100 have sold already. So there aren't that many. Uh, and as I said, if you want to get a, a collector's item for a, a status quo Ralph safer this is this is you have to move quickly because um, I think I'm going to take a few more uh, for my friends and family before before we're done. Yeah, um, listen, I,
0: I I know you gave me a copy, so I know you're definitely giving giving some out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to say about the Sefer, the Machabra, and then I'll move on to ask you what else, if you're working on anything else.
1: Yes, um, and as I said, I think I, that's it for the Machabra. I'm sure when we finish, I'm going to kick myself and say, ah, oh, I could have mentioned this, I could have mentioned that. But I, as I said, the 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 schus the to my father, and I guess to me, will be, afilu echa, but hopefully leave me one on one. If Tamina Chachamim can take the safer and learn from it, and learn what what learning was like, and just be mavato everything that they know about learning <laughs> until now, and just learn as if they were living in the year eighteen forty two, and just learn the people safer, and then walk away and say, well, you know, what did I gain from this? And uh, and 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 tell me that they really they really enjoyed, even if they you know even if they disagree with the pshat, they really enjoyed the workout that it gave them, the the, the to just learn what kind of ideas were out there then, and what kind of mahabrim, and just spread Torah that way. Um, I'm hoping you know Maki Deshir will I have given it to a few Maki Deshir who are in the Union of these Masakhtis, and hopefully, you know, for them it'll be easier to read through. So the more the more it can get out there through these select uh readers, I think uh, the, the the more Hana I will have and the more it's it will be for my father and uh shama Um so yes, I, I, I want to mention one more thing that I, I, I can't stop now that I got into this world. It's another it's not a world I would ever want to leave. Um, and uh, the next project I have is my father's uncle. As I said, my father's father's brother, whose name was Svi Hirsch Friedman, was a, um, a Talmud and a Ben Bias of the Caduceus who was the father of you know, Rabbi Yodish, the Sant that we know most about. So he lived in uh, the house of, in Siget. Rabbi Yodish's father, Rabbi Yodish himself, grew up in Siget, remember where they had, had to escape from Eel. Uh, so Rabbi uh, uh and, and Mabzi Hirsch were really chaverim. He was a little older than Rabbi and we'll come to that in a minute. So uh, he, um, after he got married, he was a rabbi in a town in Transylvania, a Hungarian-speaking town uh, called Hatzag, for about five, six years. And for reasons that we do not know, he, he moved to the United States in 1922. He was the first, one of the first, maybe the first Rub in America who wore white socks and nishtrayimol. And uh, it was a real time of And he got into tremendous fights. He got into tremendous fights with the Lithuanian Rav on him that were here at the time. And uh, he printed all kinds of kintushim and starim against them. They're all, almost all called Svi Chemed. Uh, I've spent a lot of my um, adult life trying to assemble anything I can that was printed by him and letters. And um, I know every every year or so, somebody from the Satmar community calls me and says they're doing research on the Sat Rebbe and they need to want to talk to me about with Hirsch because he was one of the few people in America who could who knew the Saint Rebbe as a youngster and you know was 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 grew up in his house and knew him from you know from the heim and wasn't necessarily Mirtus. He didn't have the Im Sadin from the St. Merevi that other people had. And he would sometimes get into arguments with the St. Merevi, which um, I don't know much about, but I know they existed. So I know there's a, the letters from the St. Merevi to him. He was more mahmur than the St. about Say HaKochobim, and the Satmar Rabbi wrote to him and said, "I know you're right, but you know we can't do this." So Satmar Rabbi, like Rabbi, We can't, we can't get the item to do this. so Let's just go with this she said. let's not be machmir even more. So that 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 does Satmar have published and that put him on the radar screen uh, for Satmar. But as I said, he 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 fought with a lot of rabbanim from 1924 till he stopped uh, till the, the late 60s. He died in 1970. He was a very strange character. My father only met him twice. He, he he didn't want to have anything to do with the family and the lady years, my father being the ish shalom. He really was a freedman. He was he made he was able to get him to make peace with us. And we went to his house in Flatbush once. He came to our house in Queens once. Um. Anyway, he he has these svarim that are fascinating. They're sometimes paragraph by paragraph rebuttals of um, literature rabbanim svarim. I'll give you the first one for an example. There was a sefer called Kocha hetera which is um, written by a very interesting person. He had Smitha from the Vesalevi and he had a medical degree. He didn't have too many people like that in the late 1800s. He went to uh, Zichman Yaakov, where he was the doctor, and he wouldn't treat the colonists if they weren't wearing tzitzis, this, this robe. So eventually they kicked him out of Zichman Yaakov. He, he was a, he went to America and he was a robe in Crown Heights and he had a shul, and he wrote a safer about Kocha de teira. It was a man, and a woman who got married. The man didn't have what we call Koach gavra, and, and the question was, can you say that because of that, there was no Kiddushin? Obviously, he disappeared, and the woman wanted to be married, and this kochadetera de passed, Sefer, paskin, that, can, that the woman could get me married because there was a Mechahtos, there wasn't really a Kiddushin. So he, my father's uncle, wrote a sefer re, with a rebuttal called Koach atora, which is, a dark, you know, Kocha de play on his words. And then there was another saver, Hashavas Likachos. He wrote a saver called Hashavas Kehilchoso, against it. He wrote about Srogan from Eretz Yisrael, the Murka. He wrote about the Haida Mechitzas. He also wrote Svarim against Moshe Feinstein. There was a big fight about artificial insemination in the 60s, in the mid-60s, which I'm sure you know know about. So he wrote three Kuntzresim against that. So my, my, my idea would be to publish, republish all the Svarim, maybe with a historical Akdama, and to have um, maybe Rabbi Heller could do Lamedisha, well, L- 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 uh, you know, Ma'ar on the Svarim. Not that there's not a lot of Landish L- in the Svarim to begin with, but it helps to get them more of a perspective because he doesn't quote sources that are not for him. And uh, and then maybe um, and pu- publish also the Svarim that he wrote against, as one say, because if you don't have the Sefar that he's attacking, you don't really get the full picture. So that would be, I think, a very interesting thing for as a as a hobby, an interesting thing for a Talmud to- Chacham to read because he is a guy, you know, who clearly likes to pick fights, but he, but he he's, no, he's no armor. Artist. He, and and just to run through the issues and see, and also to learn about how orthodoxy was in America at the time. So um, I have a couple of second cousins, grandchildren of his, who are interested in that. And now that I put this uh, project behind me, um, if any of your listeners are interested in this and want to write to uh, or interested in Mama Komos, they, they can contact me. You can put out my uh, email address. I'd be very interested in that. If we could ever publish the Pnei Avram again, I would also be interested in somebody writing. Uh, this is what I really wanted. I couldn't find somebody to write a Lambda Shak Dhamma about the differences between the Briska Derech and the Derech that's in the Safer. Because I think that would be a great reading uh, for today's Talmud
0: Absolutely. Okay, I'll put your email uh, in the show's notes. So those interested in contacting you, and, and people could ask me for it as well. I'll also put, I'll try to find the link for those in America to purchase the Safer and yeah, you, you know, you didn't mention about Pnei Avram on Chulin or uh, Paris Paris Office. I think it's called, right? It's done, those form are not wouldn't uh, redone either.
1: They are, uh, yes, yeah, they are available through Goldenberg or you know as reprints. Uh, in fact, the Rabbi Heller, who I met obviously a few times in, in the course of this, he said, "Why don't you put out the 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 the, the, the Pnei Avram There's mistakes there too. You could do it as one said." I said. You know, really, it's my father's thing. He's not my great grandfather. I would like to do it, but I have a, you know budget. I'd rather get my my my, my uncle. I said I heard your sichaschool, and I said to him, but I'd rather get I'd rather get my uh, my uh, my uncle stuff going with my my limited means. But I think you're right. I think I, my 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 greatest dream would be. That the Pilpul uh, lamdus will get a renaissance here, and that there'll be uh, that uh, you know these kind of machons that are that we uh, the Or will, will will reissue the Pnei Avram and Anchulin and uh, and other lamdus that are not necessarily politically correct because I think the more the more we have out there, the better Torah is going to be.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Well. Thank you very much uh, for joining me to talk about, I would say, the Pnei Avram, but like I said in the beginning, but it's not only that. It was about your your father's story and uh, the Pilpul and the Pnei Avram and at the end, your uncle. So a lot of fascinating information here in the episode, and I hope the listeners enjoyed as much as I did. And thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for all you do.